0: Alright, well you can open your Bible to 2nd Timothy. We're going to be in a couple passages in that book, mostly in chapter 3. Today's Mother's Day, and we're talking about our mothers. Galatians 4.18 says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Paul is talking to the Galatians in that verse, and he's telling them, you've got these people that are coming in, and they're just trying to flatter you and make you feel good to get their false teachings in there. But he has that little comment that, hey, if there's a good reason to make somebody feel good or to honor somebody or to make much of somebody, then it ought to be done, and Our mothers spend much of their time making much of us. (laughs) That's kind of the role of a mom, isn't it? That she's helping her children, she's helping her husband, she's helping the family move forward. And it's fitting that we take special time to thank and to honor them today. We read in the history books, we read in the scriptures of a lot of great men and women of God. And in most cases, in fact, in many cases, they were taught to follow the Lord at their mother's knees And that's the part of the story that always gets skipped over. You know, we want to get to the interesting stuff. All right, just get me to the point where he was ready to go off to the mission field. Or just get me to the point where they finally encountered that person that was going to change their life. But the Lord sees all of that. And there's many a mom who's going to be rewarded on the final day for her faithfulness. I think there are going to be a lot of missionaries and evangelists and apostles who are going to watch their mom Share in their reward for their faithfulness and raising up their children. I want to read this story This is from a biography of Hudson Taylor who was of course the famous missionary to China back in the day and was one of the first you could say effective missionaries in China and in the beginning of the book He was not even a Christian and we have this passage here it says the beginning of it all was a quiet hour among his father's books When young, he sought something to interest him. His mother was away from home and the boy was missing her. So Hudson Taylor's mom is out of town. Many miles away, his mother was specially burdened that Saturday afternoon about her only son. Leaving her friends, she went alone to plead with God for his salvation. Hour after hour passed while that mother was still upon her knees until her heart was flooded with a joyful assurance that her prayers were heard and answered. So she's away and all of a sudden she gets burdened in her heart to pray for her son and for hours she interceded for his soul. I'm going to skip over the part, but what happened was Hudson Taylor was in the library, picked up the Bible, started reading it, came under conviction and was saved that moment at the same hour she was praying. Longing to share his newfound joy with his mother, he was the first to welcome her on her return. I know, my boy, I know, she said with her arms about him. I have been rejoicing for a fortnight in the glad news you have to tell. So... She prayed her son into heaven, basically. The Lord said, hey, I'm working on Hudson right now. You need to pray for him. And she prayed, and she knew for those two weeks, even though she was away, that God had brought her son to salvation. And when she came home, he's telling her, she's like, I know the Lord was telling me already. And of course, he went on to become this wonderful missionary who inspired so many others. But it all began from his mom heeding the word of the Lord and praying for her son, Mothers, I hope today you will be encouraged in your labors. You will remember to never give up on those whom God has entrusted to you. As it says in 1 Corinthians, to be steadfast, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You feel like you're just banging your head against the wall. Nothing I do works. The Bible says you just keep going because the Lord is at work as well. And today we're going to look at Timothy and Timothy's mother and his grandmother as well. And Paul is going to give some instruction to Timothy that I think is familiar to a lot of us. I'm sure all of us at one point or another growing up were dissatisfied with some decision that had been handed down from our mom. And so we chose to take it to dad, who maybe wasn't aware of all the situation that was going on the appeals court of the father right and you come in dad mom won't let me go here mom won't let me do that mom won't let me eat this and i'm sure all of us have at one point or another heard our fathers say listen to your mother i love that line it's wonderful dad mom said but i usually just say listen to your mother and this is exactly what paul is going to tell timothy to do in second timothy he's going to give him that same instruction to listen to to what his mother had taught him. So we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 5 of 2 Timothy, and then we're going to go to chapter 3 and spend the rest of our time there. So verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is going to help us Understand some of the background of Timothy. He's rejoicing in the beginning. You have sincere faith just like your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois. We read this story not many weeks ago in the book of Acts that Timothy was one of those in Lystra who had been saved on Paul's first missionary journey. And then when he came on his second missionary journey, he comes to the city of Lystra, and there's a young man there by the name of Timothy who was well spoken of by the church there, and Paul brought him along with Silas and him as a helper. He's going to disciple him to essentially take his place in a few years. And Lystra, you know, was the place where Paul had been stoned by the religious mob where Barnabas and Paul were about to be worshiped by these people first. They thought that they were the Greek gods come down to speak to them. And that's where Timothy and Eunice and Lois were from. And we learn from that passage, you'll remember, that Timothy was the son of Eunice, who was a Jew, and his father was a Greek. We do not know his name. So Timothy was half-Gentile, half Jewish. So Lois and Eunice were Jewish women, but you almost get the feeling that their religion was convenient. It was traditional. It was what they had inherited. You know, our family's always been Jewish, so this is what we do. But Eunice married a Gentile. At least we assume that she married him. It does not specifically say that. It just says that his father was a Gentile. So it could have been that she married this man, or it could have been that She made a mistake, and there was a moment of passion that led to Timothy's birth. Whatever the case, Timothy was not circumcised, which shows one of two things, and either one amounts to the same thing. Either his father said, no, you're not circumcising my child, you're not doing that, that's barbaric, it's not going to happen. Or... His mother had no real encounter with his father after that, but she still didn't circumcise him. So it's probably that there was some cultural pressure there, but whatever the case, they they were Jews of a sort. We're going to see that he was taught the scriptures, he learned all the traditions, but they, they had never taken it to the place where it began to hurt, right? Oh, I love him. I'm not going to say no to him because he's a Gentile and I'm a Jew. That's not fair. I'm not going to circumcise him. That's that's old-fashioned. I don't want to do that, and he'll be ostracized. It was convenient. It was traditional religion. But when the gospel came to their city, it totally transformed them. And you can imagine that they would have begun to take that faith more seriously because now it's been completed in the Messiah, Jesus. And they're passing that faith on to Timothy. And by the time we get to this book here, you get the impression that Eunice and Lois were known for their faith in Lystra. They were pillars in that church. And you know what I love about this story? Eunice raised her son beyond her own failure. Isn't that cool? She had failed Maybe her mother had failed too. Lois had failed in raising a daughter or permitting her daughter to live as she shouldn't have lived and Eunice had done the same thing and she had this son Timothy and he wasn't circumcised and she was married or had been with a Greek but now they're going to raise this boy Timothy who is going to become of course Timothy (laughs) as we know him today. It's a sad thing that most of the time as parents We reproduce the same flaws in our children that we have. The same flaws that we learn from our parents and that they learn from their parents, we end up seeing them in our own kids. And it can be very difficult to avoid that, even if you have every intention of wanting to push them away from those things. Or sometimes, unfortunately, you'll see that parents will cultivate those same flaws in their children. I don't know, if if they want their children to be like them in that way, and they don't want their kids to grow beyond them, or maybe because they just don't see any other way to do it. I think the best biblical example of this is the family of Laban in the book of Genesis. You remember that story. Isaac was married to a woman named Rebekah. Rebekah had a brother named Laban. And we would come to meet Laban much later. But when Rebekah comes and lives with Isaac and she has her twin boys, Jacob and Esau, Jacob is given the name Jacob, which means heel catcher. And the idea of a heel catcher is you're running a race with somebody. You reach out and you trip them up. <laughs> and because he was trying to grab Esau's ankle as he was being born because he wanted to be born first. And the idea is that he was a trickster. He was a sneaky guy. And you see this lived out. Whatever his name might have meant, he certainly lived up to it. Because Rebekah had come from a sneaky family, and she taught her son to be sneaky. We see Jacob tricking Esau, really manipulating Esau, out of his own birthright. And then Rebekah, who had been told by God, your younger son shall be the one who inherits the, the blessing. So she thought, I'll make sure that happens by teaching my son to be sneaky and trick his father. And that sneaking around, that trickery, got Jacob to have to run away. Esau's like, I'm going to kill you, Jacob, for sneaking around behind my back. So Jacob, having learned it from his mom, goes to visit his mom's brother. Now Laban was probably the sneakiest guy in the whole Bible. Jacob says, I love your daughter Rachel. I'd love to marry her. Laban says, oh sure, of course. Jacob works for him for seven years, but on the morning after his wedding night, he wakes up and it's Rachel's sister Leah in the bed with him. Laban had tricked him into marrying the wrong girl. And he says, oh, it's no big deal. You can still marry the other one. Just Leah isn't too good looking. How was I ever going to get her married off? But now you can have them both. And there's a whole long story of Jacob tricking Laban and Laban tricking Jacob. Finally, Jacob's like, we got to get out of here. We're going to leave. So they leave. But then Rachel, who is also part of the same sneaky family, steals all of her father's household gods and it causes her father to get a posse together and try and chase them all down. She lies to her own father. Jacob finally confronts Esau and God has to break him of that. But the point is, this whole family... Rebecca and Laban, the brother and sister, Rachel, the daughter, Jacob, the son, they were all sneaky tricksters. And this is a big, long story of them trying to outfox one another. And it brought a ton of pain to that family. We do this as people, don't we? We bring up our kids just like we are, even if we don't intend to. One day you just wake up and you go, oh, no. You ever sit up one day and realize, I'm just like my father. Or, I'm just like my mom. I swore I'd never be like that man. And here I am. This is why a lot of times we treat people a certain way or place certain expectations on them based on who their parents were. Maybe you, you're talking to somebody then you find out what family they belong to and you go, ah, okay. Now I get it. Now I know. I know what a Jones is like. I picked the most common name so I didn't offend nobody. I know what the Jones family is like. No, don't come around here. I know what you people do. you know what is so great? The gospel of Jesus Christ comes in, and we have all these destructive cycles as people, but the gospel comes in, puts a stop to all that, and lets us get off that merry-go-round. Timothy was going to be different. His whole family had been raised in this traditional, convenient, kind of, sort of, do-it-until-it-hurts religion, and he's going to become Timothy as we know him. That's why in Second Corinthians 5 it says, "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come." He says in that same passage, "We regard no one according to the flesh. We don't treat people a certain way based on any fleshly category. You could put it this way: doesn't matter who your daddy was. doesn't matter who your mama was. doesn't matter who your brothers and sisters are. doesn't matter what the, the script of your family is. What matters is, has Jesus Christ got a hold of your life and changed you? Every parent wants to see better things for their children, right? There are families that will sacrifice, really, their whole life in order for their kids to have a better life. They know, I'm never going to get up there, but he can. So I'm going to do everything I can to support him or to support her. And of course, that means we want to see the next generation avoid the same mistakes that we made. And the Lord helps us to do that. And in the Lord, it is possible. And Lois and Eunice give us a stellar example of how we are to do this because they trained their son up in the same sincere faith that they had. And if you turn now to chapter 3, Paul is going to explain how this was done, what it was that could inoculate Timothy against the pressures of the world. We're going to start reading verse 12, and we're going to end at verse 17 today, but we're going to right now just read verses 12 and 13. Indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is a great passage because it really sets up what the challenge is, not only as parents, but also as believers, but it's going to give us the solution. He says, indeed, here. This is is an emphatic construction in Greek. He's using two conjunctions. The point is, he's saying, what I'm about to say is very serious. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That word for godly is, is pious, in Greek, it's eusebos is the, is the word. It means anybody who wants to follow Jesus, wants to be a godly man or a godly woman, will be persecuted. You might know this, the word for persecuted in both New and Old Testament. Uh, in Greek, it's dioko, and it means will be hunted down. You ever notice that you try to just live a godly life, people won't just leave you alone? That people are going to come and insist that you start to compromise and be like them? This is the external threat. There's an external and an internal threat in these verses. The external is that the world cannot tolerate the light of the gospel and will do everything they can to snuff it out. Haven't you noticed? We say, live and let live. And we say, okay, fine, let us live. But they won't let us live. People are going to come after us. Have you ever worked in a, in a workplace where you just want to quietly not engage in the same things? You don't want to talk the same way. You don't want to watch the same stuff. You're not going to cheat. You're not going to lie. Like, listen, you all do what you're going to do. I'm going to be over here. They can't leave you alone. They, they do what they can to bring you into that. In fact, this is similar to what Paul and and Barnabas had told the people in Lystra in Acts 14. They said that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So you've got to recognize this promise. If you're going to try to live godly, you want to be pious in the Lord, you are going to face opposition. I mean, we see persecution on the rise all over the world. We don't really see it so much here now, but Nigeria, for example, is seeing all kinds of terrible persecution. And there have been some countries that are taking advantage of the current crisis in order to exercise more control over the churches. And this is a possibility we must all confront. It just takes one generation for things to turn around. And we don't want that to happen. And if we have anything that we can do to prevent that from happening, we ought to. But Paul says, this is the way it is, guys. We see more what you might call opposition. Opposition that people are getting more and more willing to speak out against the church, and they're getting more and more nasty and more and more radical in the things they propose to shut us down. (laughs) Live and let live, right? And he says, while the godly are persecuted, here's what's going to happen. That deceivers will advance upon the worst. That's how the the Greek literally puts that. He says they will go on from worse to worse, right? They're going to get worse in their behavior. In Greek, he's saying they will advance upon the worst. It's like a military unit that is marching. They have a goal. They have somewhere they're headed, or it's like a race. You're running the race. The finish line is what? Worse. (laughs) And we wonder, where is this going? We see the way that people bring up certain uh, behaviors, and the the one we see right now especially is, is sexual liberation. It's like, we should be able to do whatever we want. Okay, well, what's the end goal here? There is no end goal. It's just worse. We should be able to do whatever we want. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And thankfully, there are times where the, the violence or the wickedness of society can be pulled back. Thankfully, we do not live in a time in our country where people are enslaved. Thank the Lord for that. Right? That, that's a good thing. But on this other part, you're seeing the sexual liberation it's called it's really enslavement getting from bad to worse and things that a few years ago were things that people blushed at and didn't want to talk about in public now it's being pushed and there are people with the stated goal we want to remove any sense of shame about any sexual act it's like are you sure about that is that really a good idea advancing upon the worse from bad to worse And that not only are they deceived, they are deceiving. It's like the worst pyramid scheme of all time. That's what sin is. You know, you ever have that friend that calls you up and say, hey man, I haven't seen you in a long time and I've got this new thing that I'd like to sell to you. It's like, oh great. I'm glad to (laughs) know that the the time you contact me is when you've got something you want to sell. That's what sin is. Because it's not just, I want you to buy the product. I don't want you just to be sinning. I want to recruit you. To be a salesman for sin, right? It's deceiving and being deceived, that we're all gonna be part of this. You, it's not enough for you just to acknowledge this. You've gotta celebrate it, you've gotta evangelize for it, and dragging other people down into their deception. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 14, that they are blind guides. Leave them alone. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And that's that internal battle. Where false teaching and false ideas come in. And they try to lure us away from the pure word of the gospel. And Paul uses that word imposter here. This is gois in Greek. It's the same word he used earlier in chapter 3 to describe Janus and Jambres. These were the sorcerers in the book of Exodus that opposed Moses. Remember Moses showed up. He's got his staff, throws it down and it becomes a serpent right there. And then these other magicians come in and they throw down their staffs and they become serpents too. But then what happens? Moses' snake ate their snakes. And then they go to Pharaoh and they said, "Uh, Pharaoh, we don't know how to do that. I have no idea how Moses made that happen. Because they had a trick up their sleeve. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. Maybe there was some demonic power behind that. Doesn't matter. But whatever power they were exposed to, it was not my stick is going to eat your stick. One time as a family, we were watching a nature documentary. And you always got to be careful with those because you never know like, how intense is this going to be? Like, are we going to actually see the wolf get the baby caribou? I don't know. But we were watching one about cobras, and uh, there was a scene in it where one cobra ate another cobra. It was horrifying. And my wife especially didn't like that. My, my sons were, like, wide-eyed, staring at this. And it was not a pleasant thing to watch, and that's what happened there in the court of Pharaoh. And Paul is saying these people were imposters. They didn't have any real power. They had enough power to trick Pharaoh into giving them what they wanted. And this is what we're dealing with today. There are things in the world that seem so plausible and they sound so good, but the end is death. Which is why we're always compelled to never think about the end, right? How many songs have been written with some variation of the lyric, Don't think about tomorrow. We've only got tonight. And then you wake up and you're old and your back hurts. I thought we only had tonight. What happened? YOLO. No one says that anymore. But that was the thing, right? Hey, do it. You only live once. The end of it is death. Paul told us in Colossians 2 verse 8, to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. I like that. Philosophy is very sophisticated deception. Empty deceit is just, it's unsophisticated. They're just trying to bully you around, right? According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's saying people are going to try to take you captive by the traditions and the elements. That is the foundation. They're going to try and get you to walk away from Christ by being just like everyone else. And I'm going to give you really quickly three values that the world holds that we have to avoid. These are the three things that the world is believing. And it's this pressure that is coming upon the church. And as parents, we ought to know these are the pressures that are coming against our children as we try to raise them in the Lord. We're going to go through these quickly. Number one is naturalism with a capital N. This is the belief that the only reality is what you can see, what you can feel, and what you can measure. That is, nature is all that there is. So you get the word naturalism. That there is no God, there are no angels, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there's no such thing as inspiration of scripture, there is no prophecy. What you see is what you get, you live, you die, you're done. We do not believe that as Christians. We are supernaturalists. We believe that there is more to the world than what we see. We believe in God. We believe in angels and heaven and all the rest of it. But the world is always constantly trying to push us to believe that there is nothing other than what we can see. You can keep your religion. That's cute. But you just got to understand that at the base of it, there's nothing really there. That leads us to, into the second one, which is pluralism. This is the belief that all philosophies and all religions are equally valid and must be equally affirmed. You see that one all over the place, don't you? We are not pluralists. We are Christians. And we are Christians because we believe that Christianity is true. Pluralism. That since there is nothing really behind any of these religions, since they're all made up, who are you to say that one is any better than another? Who are we as a society to decide whether or not one is better than another? You guys, this one is really easy even for Christians to fall into. You see this on on Facebook. And I've had a special delight during, uh, (laughs) during this quarantine to spend more time on Facebook than I have in a very long time. But you see this a lot where people will, even Christians will come out and, and they're, they're mimicking, they're parroting the voice of the world and they say things like, listen, I believe in God, but all you Christians that want to say mean things about other religions, that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us to love one another. And then all of your secular friends are in the comments, yes, oh, it's so great, wonderful. Jesus doesn't want us to hate each other. It's like, Yeah, you're right. Jesus doesn't want us to hate each other. But Jesus also told the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. He knew what the truth was. He was very kind, but he also spoke the truth. And when we start parroting these things, like out of a desire to be nice or kind or liked by other people, and say, I just can't stand Christians when they want to put down other religions. Hidden in that is is a strain of pluralism that we've got to look out for. And this all leads to number three, hedonism. You know this one. This is the belief that pleasure and desire are the highest motivations. They ought to be served. You've heard this, right? If, if there's nothing more than what we see, touch, and measure, there's no greater philosophy than any other, then you know what? Just do what feels good, right? Just do what feels good. Live your life however you want. If it makes you happy, do it. If it's what you are desiring, then do it. And it's really funny how many explanations for various behaviors more or less amount to, well, I really wanted to. I'll never forget this. I was in high school, and I was listening to the morning show on the way to school one day, and this came on the air, and it was not a Christian morning show. And I remember hearing this and thinking to myself, in high school, this will make a great sermon illustration one day. So here we go. This is all coming to fruition. But they had these two women on the, on the radio program in the morning, and this one woman had said that my younger sister is now dating this man that I dated for a long time and he cheated on me and broke up with me and it was this big mess. Now she's dating him and wants to bring him over for Christmas dinner. So of course they've got him on the morning show and they're squabbling and fighting and going back and forth and you know the host says to this girl, how can you feel justified in doing this? And she said, well listen, when we were together that night and he leaned over and he kissed me, it just felt right and I I can't deny what I actually feel. And then it just blew up, and it was hilarious, and it was, uh, this is a really weird thing. And I remember thinking to myself, that's going to make a great illustration of this point. How could she justify doing this thing to her sister? Because it felt right. How can you tell me that I'm wrong? It feels so right. Well, who cares if it feels right? It's not right. That's the point, isn't it? Because there is something higher than just what we want or what we feel We're supposed to do what is right, not what feels good. And as parents and as Christians, we've got to be on the lookout for these things. Naturalism, that there's nothing more than what you see. Pluralism, every idea is equally valid. And three, hedonism, just do whatever feels good. That's what the world is constantly pushing. We went to a different culture, be a little different, but this is the one we live in. And you cannot let these ideas come in and rip up the word of God. And this is what Paul is going to say in these next verses. You've got the world coming after you. If you want to live godly, Timothy, there's going to be persecution. Parents, if you're going to raise godly kids, they are going to be opposed and they're going to be deceived into believing these things. So what do we do? Well, read verse 14. But as for you, I love that. The imposters, they're going to deceive people. They're going to be deceived. But here's what you do. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So in contrast to these deceivers, Paul calls upon Timothy to cling to the truth. He tells him to continue. That word in Greek is meno. It's used a lot in the Bible. John uses it a whole lot. And in John's gospel, it's usually translated abide. So when Jesus tells us to abide in him, this is the same word. It can mean continue or stay or keep going. He says, continue, abide in what you have been taught and what you have believed. Keep going. Don't walk away from the faith, Timothy. But what's interesting and what I want to draw our attention to here, especially on this Mother's Day, the reason that Paul gives for Timothy to continue in what he's learned. He says, knowing from whom you have learned it. The reason he gives for Timothy to continue in the faith is you have been taught these things by godly people. Look at their example. Isn't that something that you want to be a part of? He's calling his attention back to his mother, Eunice. He's going to mention it in the next verse here. Or to his grandmother, Lois. Or even Paul himself. He's reminding him that the example that you've been given is a good example. So why would you walk away from what you've been taught? Your heritage is not something to be thrown away lightly. In Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Solomon put it this way. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. He says, continue in what you've been taught because you learned it from some good people. That's countercultural. Because we're taught you've got to question everything. You've got to break away from what your parents have taught you. You've got to go out and find yourself. You know all the old stories? When the young buck leaves home and you know, abandons what his parents have taught him, that's usually where the story goes wrong, isn't it? When Pinocchio leaves Geppetto, that was a mistake. He shouldn't have left, right? But it's interesting. In our stories today, when the young buck leaves home and abandons his parents, that's when things start to go right. Isn't that funny? We've got to get away from all that and find ourselves. Have you heard that? You've got to get out and find yourself, man. You've got to learn for yourself. I had a, not really a friend, I guess, but a person in high school who was doing something that I told her she ought not to be doing. And she said, well, you know, it's just what I'm going to do. And I said, well, well, isn't that so obvious? Haven't you seen other people that have done that, that it's gone very badly for them? And she said, well, I've got to make my own mistakes. It's like, why? (laughs) You don't have to. They made the mistake. It can be your mistake if you want. You can say, okay, I've already seen that done. Therefore, I'm not going to try that. He says, learn what your parents have taught you. Continue in what your parents have taught you. We're going to get into the teachings of our teachers. You do want to evaluate what was taught. But Paul begins by saying, evaluate who taught it to you. If you learn something from a good man, Timothy from me, Paul, from Silas, or from a good woman, from Lois and Eunice, your mother. Why would you want to run away from that? We should not be so quick to abandon the teachings of godly teachers because sound doctrine produces good fruit. So if the person that taught you to follow Jesus has good fruit in their life, it's because the things they are believing are good things. I remember this dude in my Acts class in in seminary, and he was a... he thought he was very cool. And I remember he said in one, one class, he said, you know, I don't believe anything that anybody's ever taught me. I've got to find it out for myself. He said, you know, people told me that Jesus was the only way, but I thought, well, I've got to read the Bible for myself and see if that's true. Now, that sounds really good, but really what that sounded to me like was, that's a really dumb thing to do. Because <laughs> there have been good people that have gone before you and figured out a lot of this stuff. And if they're good, godly people, according to Paul... Well, why not just stick with it, Timothy, or whatever this fellow's name was? As mothers and fathers, we ought to be that kind of example. We ought to live our lives in such a way that our kids say, you know, I don't know if I understand everything my mom and dad have taught me, but I see the way they live, and that's a good way to live. So I'm going to stick with it until I can make it my own. It's called adorning the gospel in Scripture. We make it attractive to people. Titus puts it this way, or the book of Titus. Paul is writing to Titus and says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He's saying you live your life in such a godly way that if anybody wants to come and oppose you, they'll be embarrassed. Everybody's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to tell me that this guy is a problem? You're going to tell me that she's not living correctly? Look at her. Everybody knows her. When we consider the example, maybe of your mother or father, if they raised you in the faith, or of men like Pastor Chuck, or if you had a great pastor growing up, why would you want to abandon that? And this is what Paul reminds Timothy of. Getting into verse 15, How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this is important. It is not just enough to know who. Because people can be deceived. There can be good people that teach the wrong things. And there can be rotten people that teach the right things. It's an unfortunate truth. Hopefully we can hold two things in our minds at the same time. You want to know who taught it to you, but you also want to know what they're teaching. So Timothy is hearing from Paul, you're going to have persecution coming your way. You're going to have false teaching coming your way. Stick to what your mom taught you. Why? Because she taught you the scriptures, the holy writings, the hiera grammata in Greek, the holy letters, everything that was written in the scripture. And this is a reference to his mom and his grandmother, because as we saw in chapter one, they taught him the scriptures from childhood. And as I've said before, we're not quite sure exactly how Jewish Timothy's upbringing was. But traditionally, for a Jewish child at this point, from five years old, they would have been instructed in the scriptures. They would have been working to memorize the first five books of the Bible or more. And this all goes back to the instruction that Moses gave in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is an important passage for us to know. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Moses said, Hear, O Israel... You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This passage is called the Shema because the first word here, O Israel, that word for here in Hebrew is Shema. So this is why it's called that. And this is the passage. We haven't had one yet, but if we were to have a baby dedication here at the church, this is the one that we would read. Because it's the importance of teaching your children the Bible. The Bible. And it's great because he says don't just sit down and give them classroom instruction. He says talk about it when you're sitting down and when you're rising up and when you're walking by the way and when you're working in the field. Bring up the scripture then. This is so key for us, and I could talk more about this. It's not enough just to have family devotions. They're good. Great. Do them. But it's also important to show your kids that the scriptures and the truth of God infiltrate every part of your life. When you're just hanging out at Lowe's and you're picking up you know, nails to fix something, you're standing in the line, talk to your son or your daughter about the scripture. When you're driving down the road, instead of having the music turned up real loud or being on the phone, maybe just turn around and say, hey, let's talk about Jesus for a few minutes. Because it shows your kids that the, the truth of God is not restricted to specific times and specific places, but that it should be everywhere at all times. Because this is the scripture that Paul says can make us wise to salvation. As the kids take the time to read their Bibles, learning to meditate on it, what does it mean teaching your kids to meditate? Read it with them and then ask them, now, what do you think that means? And then when they know what it means, you ask them, okay, so how should we live then? How does that affect the way you live your life? When they do that, they learn the revelation of God, and it allows them to counter that false teaching that is coming their way. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil was tempting Jesus? Jesus came back three times with Scripture. He said, it is written three times. This does not mean that memory verses are like magic charms that you wave in front of the devil. Because the devil quoted Scripture to Jesus, too. The point was, Jesus not only knew the Scripture, he had not only memorized the Scripture, he had internalized it, understood it, and believed it. So that he knew in which situation the Scriptures applied, and he lived them out. May God... Richly bless every mother who has ever forced her children to read their Bibles or memorize Scripture. You know, we see this actually as a great example in Bathsheba. You know the story of Bathsheba, it's a tragic one. She was brought into David's bed, probably against her will. She was married to a man named Uriah. David got her pregnant. David had her husband murdered, brought her into his harem to live as one of his wives. She gave birth to a child, but the Lord struck the child dead out of judgment for what David had done. And it says that David consoled her, and she had another son named Solomon. And part of what David did to make up for everything he had done to her is he said, your son is going to be the one to inherit the throne. Now Bathsheba is growing up with hundreds of David's other wives, all his other children, all the nonsense going on in that palace, but she began to teach her son the scriptures. And in fact, we know that she was teaching him godly instruction because some of her own instruction to her son is now included in the Bible. Proverbs 31, an oracle given to Lemuel, which we think was another name for Solomon, by his mother. She was teaching Solomon, this is how you look for a good woman, Solomon. And she gave him all kinds of other instruction, too. She says, if my son's going to be the king of this people, he needs to know the scriptures. He needs to know God. Don't ever be deceived into thinking that the Bible is just another book. You know, oh, well, there's lots of good things. I mean, if I wanted my kid to learn not to lie, I mean, there's plenty of other good stories that can teach them not to lie. No, no, no. (laughs) This is not just some other book. Well, it's too hard for them. It's really above their reading level. First of all, there are plenty of other Bibles that have been written at a child's level. Second of all, it's the scripture. It's not just another book. It can change their lives. Nor should we think that children should come to it on their own. Y'all, I think this is a dangerous thing that we have allowed to come into the church. Listen, I don't want to push my kids to read the Bible or go to church because they've got to come to it on their own. I can't force my religion down their throat. Okay, in one sense, you're right. You don't want to push your kids and and, and to the point where you're forcing it down their throat. However, do you make your kids go to school? I bet you do. Do you make them brush their teeth? I'm willing to bet you do. Do you make them be polite in public? Hopefully you do. Not everyone does, but hopefully most of us do. We teach our kids to do the right things, and we make them do things that are good for them. And that's what the scripture is. Oh, I don't want to make them go to church. They don't want to go. Well, so what about that? They wake up every morning and say, Mom, I don't want to go to school. And what do you say? Tough. Get up. You're going to miss the bus. We should make our children do what is good for them. Now, when they get older, do they have to make their own decision? Yeah, they absolutely do. But <laughs> what do we always say? When you're living under my roof... This is what you're going to do. It's not just another book because this book will change their lives. Jeremiah 23, 29, the Lord says, Is not my word like fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Oh, my kid is so hard-hearted. My little, my little boy, man, when they hit like 11, 12 years old, something happens. I don't know what it is with children. They stop being cute. I just, I just can't break it. It's too hard. The Bible says that the word of God is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. The Lord can break the hardened heart in the best way. And we get now into verse 16, where we get one of our coolest descriptions of Scripture. Why was Timothy's instruction from his mother enough to make him ready to face that persecution and those temptations? Why was the Scripture enough to prepare him for that? Because verse 16 all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The Word of God is God-breathed. That's a Greek word, theopnoustos. Theos means God, pneustos means breath or spirit. The idea is that God has breathed out the Word. It's come from His very mouth. This is where we get the doctrine of inspiration. That word inspire actually has a root that means to breathe, that has been breathed in. God oversaw the writing of Scripture, that it is inerrant, it is infallible. Now, a lot of cute people really want to jump in and say, well, the Bible was written by men. Yes, we know that. We do know that. We are not Mormons. We do not believe that we discovered gold plates that had been etched in and we, all we had to do was write them down. We're not Muslims who believe that Muhammad went into a trance and he just dictated everything that was told him. We believe that God used people to write the Bible, that he used their personality, that he used their style, but that he is sovereign enough to make sure that the words written down were exactly what needed to be written. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, "...no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation." That means you don't get to say, well, that's just the way Isaiah saw it. That's just David's interpretation. That's Paul's interpretation. Peter said, no, that's not how it works. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not composed of men's opinions, nor is it really concerned with our opinions today. It is a standard of belief and behavior against which we measure our lives. The Bible is inerrant, meaning it is accurate in all of its statements. It is infallible. It's a reliable guide for life. And if that is the case, then this book is full of power and authority. So why would we teach our children anything else? There's a lot of good stuff out there. Yeah, but is it a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? Is it inspired? Is it inerrant? Is it infallible? Or why would we let them make their own decision about it? You know what we say to our kids? When they say, I don't want to eat my broccoli, we say, Eat it, it's good for you. When they're out working in the yard, I don't want to do this anymore, Daddy. Well, work is good for you. Sometimes when my kids fall down and scrape their knees, Dad, that hurts. I said, Well, pain is good for you. My wife says, Tyler. But you know what Paul says? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Why do we make our kids read our Bibles and study it and learn it and go to church and go to camp and all this stuff? It's good for you. And he gives us four ways that it's profitable here. Number one, teaching. The Bible gives us instruction. It gives us the facts. And there are some people that want to say the facts don't matter. All that matters is the lessons. Well, that's not what the Bible says about itself. It's teaching us who God is, what he is like, what he has commanded, how he's interacted with people in the past, what he plans to do in the future. There are so many people, and y'all, even pastors and teachers and Christians and authors that don't know their Bibles. They don't know what it says. They maybe have read it before, but they've not understood properly what it means. I've read even Christians that write these books or come up with these sermons, and they'll make a point that is very clearly denied in another portion of Scripture, but they just are not familiar with it or they're choosing to ignore it. You see this a lot in People who are not Christians that are trying to explain Christianity. History Channel will drive you crazy if you try to do this. You get some expert on Christianity, and they can't even explain the most basic things. And you're like, that's not what we believe. And you want to sit there and scream at your TV screen sometimes. Because they don't know what the Word says, the teaching of Scripture. That's the first thing. you got to know what's in it. I don't know if they're grasping it. Well, we'll worry about that later. Learn what it says first. And eventually, they'll have those moments when they're getting older and they go, oh, that's what that means. Number two, reproof. This word could be translated refutation. It means it corrects your faulty ideas. When you come to the Bible, there are places where you are going to disagree with it every once in a while. Oh, I don't know about that. But the Bible is a standard of thought and belief. It challenges and refutes your ideas. And now we have a tendency to be arrogant and say, well, I just don't know if I'm going to believe all that. It's God's word. You are going to find times where you are wrong. You've been believing the wrong thing. Your culture has assimilated the wrong things. Now, when we send out missionaries and we go to Africa or we go to Nepal or we go to Greece, I don't know, wherever, it's very easy for us to look at their culture and see where they've got it wrong. (laughs) But somehow we think, well, we've got it right. We're very smart. And we, we try to find ways to make the Bible accommodate to what we already think. But that's no good. Reproof. It's refutation. I just think that. Well, it's not enough for you to just think that. What does the Bible say and then it refutes what we actually believe. It's a second thing, reproof. Number three is correction. This is about correcting the way you're living, not just the way you think, but the way you're acting. You do not get to evaluate the Bible. The Bible evaluates you and shows you where you're living right and where you're living wrong. And I've heard every excuse in the book, you guys, about why I should be allowed to live this way. Well, the Bible says you shouldn't. Well, yeah. Okay, well, well then what? Oh, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to do it. Well, you're refusing to be corrected by the Scripture. You might think it's okay to live this way, and then you come across that verse and go, oh, I shouldn't be doing that anymore. That's called correction. The Bible is not just there to affirm you in all the things that you do. We really made a, almost a, a god out of that word affirmation, haven't we? We just have to affirm one another. Well, sometimes the Bible shows up and says, no, you're wrong. You've got to be corrected. Thank goodness for that, right? Number four is training. And this is really all that process come together. If you want your children to walk in righteousness, you've got to let the Bible do its work at correcting their ideas, correcting their behavior, giving them the facts. It's really, it all springs from that. You re- learn what the Bible says Oh no, my thoughts are not in line with the Bible's thoughts. Well, correction, reproof, training brings it into line. And this is what we teach our children to do, is to evaluate their lives by the scriptures and then bring it into line with what the Bible says. It's a lifelong process. Hopefully you get some of the big stuff out of the way early. Okay, I shouldn't kill anybody. This is good to know. Now let's see what else. I shouldn't be angry without a cause. Okay, that's tougher. Might take a little longer. But it's a lifelong process of training Four things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? I've had somebody tell me I don't think it's possible for a young man to live a life without sexual immorality. But the Bible says that he can. How? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Paul says, Timothy, listen to your mother. Why? Because persecution is coming, temptation is coming, and if you stand in what she taught you, you'll be able to stand. Why? Because she taught you God's perfect word, which is able to make you wise for salvation. And, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is what happens when a person comes into contact with the Bible, as he just described. A person becomes complete, artios means they have fulfilled their intended purpose. The Lord has a goal and a purpose for your life. And the only way that you can become ready for that is if you let the word of God train you for that moment. To be equipped by the process that we just discussed. Every one of us has a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have a divine to-do list from heaven. God has works planned out for you. And if you think about that, it can start to be intimidating because you know yourself and you know you're not good enough for that. Well, you're right because the Lord is never going to call you to do something that he's not going to prepare you for. We say where God guides, God provides. And that's not just about money. That's also about your life. God is going to train you for righteousness. We're like athletes training for the Olympics. You know, there are some athletes, when they go to the Olympics, their, their event is going to be a few seconds long. People who do the vault, they, they run up, they flip over this little box, they do a little twist, and then they land, and boom, it's done. Two seconds, three seconds. These sprinters, it's a 10-second race, but they will train for a lifetime for that moment. And, you know, we don't know when our big moment's going to come. We don't know when the event is, so to speak, which is why we've got to be training every single day so that we're always ready to go. And y'all, self-help books and motivating speeches are not going to get you there. I have benefited a lot from various business and management books, from personal organization, self-help, right? I like that stuff. But you know what happens? You grow out of it. You get to a point where you move past what's being taught there, Or you start to realize, this maybe isn't as helpful as I thought it was. Or, I could completely ignore this book and still live my life just fine. The scripture is not that way. Isn't it funny that the world has abandoned the church largely, but that has given rise to an enormous plethora of lifestyle blogs and TED Talks and all the rest of it? People are still looking for scriptures, and they're still looking for sermons. Isn't that something? But the thing is, only the Word of God is powerful enough to change your heart. Even as Christians, guys, sometimes we're like, well, I love reading Christian books. I love listening to sermons, but the Bible is just a little much for me. Listen, there's a lot of good in all those things I just described, but the Word of God is just that pure, undiluted power of God. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active. You ever feel like the Bible's reading your mind when you're reading it? It's like, how, this is a book. How does it know exactly what I needed to hear? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I know that's true. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. You ever open up the Bible and you feel like it just lays you open? You hear a scripture read and you're like, oh man, that's me. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a living book. This is why all counseling and all discipleship, every method you could possibly come up with, it is only going to be as effective as a person's willingness to obey the written word of God. You know, you can bring people in for a counseling session. You can go through all their mess. Usually all the mess amounts to two or three very clear scriptures that somebody's not listening to. But if somebody decides that they're not going to do that, there's really not a whole lot you can do. If somebody comes in and says, well, I just don't think there's anything wrong with me looking at pornography. Well, the Bible says that we should not be looking with lust upon a woman. Yeah, well, I don't believe that. Well, okay, then I can't help you. I'm very sorry. Session's over. Goodbye. If somebody comes in for, let's say, for marriage counseling, and they say, you know, I think that God would let me divorce her and remarry and it would be okay. Well, what, what are you supposed to say to that person? The Bible says the Lord hates divorce and there's a portion of the spirit in your union. And what God has brought together, let no man separate. Yeah, but I think God will give me a pass. Well, I can't help you. Because if you're not going to listen to what the word of God says, I'm sorry. This is the truth. And even for something that's less, you could say, severe than that. Someone's like, I just feel so down all the time. I'm just so angry and sad and depressed. And listen, the Bible says that God loves you. Well, I, don't, I can't believe that. Well, then I don't have anything else to give you. I'm not going to give you medicine because you're not believing the word of God. I'm not going to give you 10 months of counseling because you're not believing the simple word of God. If we're not going to do that, what are we doing? This is why Christians in counseling are different than the rest of the world. I don't have a ton of methods. And I've learned a lot of great tricks and tips, you could say, along the way from doing counseling and learning from godly people. But it all basically amounts to me finding where you are not obeying the word of God. That's what counseling is. But if you're going to come to the the point of decision and the Bible says you've got to go this way, and you say, I'm going to go that way, well, then it's not going to get better. And then people say, well, they're, they're not very sophisticated over there. You're right. We're not. It's very, very simple. The Word of God is living and active, and it's the guide for our lives. This is why, parents, you train your children in the Word. And children, if your mother was pointing you to the Scriptures, listen to her. Well, she didn't always live up to it. Well, she's not God. The Bible is God's word. We should be pointing our children to the scripture so that one day when they outgrow us and they leave us, they have absorbed the truth of God into their very hearts and they're going to live it out past that. 3 John, verse 4, as we bring it to a close. John wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, I'm a young parent but I've also been a youth pastor, and I know how that feels. There's no greater joy to hear that someone you love is walking in the truth, and there is no greater heartache than to know that someone you love and have raised is not walking in the truth. Seems like over the last couple months I've had to make some very hard phone calls to some kids of mine that are not biological kids, but kids that I took through the youth group who have abandoned the Lord. And it's hard, it's hard. It's painful. And parents, let me give you this instruction. Don't raise your kids to be productive citizens. That's not the goal. You know, some parents, they structure their entire child's life around getting into an Ivy League school, and everything surrounds that, or everything surrounds baseball, or everything surrounds dance or piano or whatever your thing is, and everything is subservient to that. That's not the goal. We don't want our kids to grow up and just have money, Or even just to grow up and meet a nice girl or a nice guy. We want our children to be walking in the path that God has laid out for them. Hannah, in the book of 1 Samuel, could not have children, so she prayed to the Lord to give her a son, and he did. son's name was Samuel. She weaned him, brought him back to the tabernacle, and gave him over to Eli, the priest. She said, For this child I have prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord." As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. That's what it is. They're our kids, but they're really the Lord's, aren't they? Give your children the word of God. Allow it to shape them into men and women of God, so that when you release them to Jesus, they're never going to stray from his side. And as for the rest of us, do what Paul told Timothy to do and listen to your mother. <laughs> Remember from whom you have learned the scriptures. Remember that they taught you the living word of God that cannot be destroyed. The persecution of the world will come. The devil wants to steal your heart. So cling to the word of God as your anchor and as your guide.